Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Turning a Moment into a Movement. I hope you guys like our new intro. I am Jay Love, and thank you for joining us. I represent the Justice for Gerard movement, and I say this every week for just in case this is your first time joining us. Gerard is my son who was wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't do, had no knowledge of, and he ends up going to prison for two years for that crime. He um, just recently, about eight months ago, passed away. And because of that experience with Gerard and meeting so many other um, families and mothers who had sons or loved ones incarcerated um, wrongly, um, we created this platform, Turning a Moment into a Movement. We talk about wrongful convictions, but we also talk about other injustice, trying to understand, get, gain more knowledge, um, bring resources and help to those who are in need, but also to work on solutions to make things better for everyone. So thank you for joining us. We have a great conversation that um, we're gonna, we plan on having today. And so I'm gonna bring in um, Reverend Tia. Hi, Reverend Tia. Oh, hello there, how are you today? I am so blessed to be here, Jay, and uh, I'm working it out. My, um, I think my laptop needs a couple of updates. I think I'm not sure, but we're going to be live hopefully soon. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm so excited about our topic and really feeling purposeful in what we're doing. Yeah. And um, I am the founder and owner of The Choice Zone helping people get into their choices, discover their purpose and soar. And I'm also um, the Michigan chair for um, G100, Oneness and Wisdom. And I just believe that anything I do, everything I do has to do with oneness, has to do with the fact that we are one. And the quicker we can get to that understanding, the better off we all will be. Uh, and then, of course, I'm always a minister over at Transforming Love Community. But ministry for me is a, is a lifestyle and it's love. Yeah. And I believe that, you know, love is the answer, Jay. That's why we're here. I, I, um, I love the new intro. I am so grateful and honored to be a part of turning a moment into a movement. And I thank God for Gerard and for what he has sparked yeah. in not only you, but us and connecting us with people all over the nation, because now is the time for us to make a change Yes, and not just say it. Exactly. Yeah. We got to be it. Right, we gotta be about the change. Mm -hmm. We gotta be about it. So Reverend Tia, you know, last week we were talking about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Do you just wanna give us a reminder about what that is and um, um, how it is affecting us today? Yes, and you know, the, the thing about generational trauma, cause people want to, 
erase history. They want to get rid of it. And that doesn't move the trauma. We've been, if, if anybody took the opportunity to look at real history, they will discover that histories have been erased all the time and it does not remove the trauma. Mm -hmm. And so what happens to the mind with the trauma, with traumatic things that have happened? What happens to the mind when a people are, were already here in United States or already in other places too, the indigenous people, what happens to the mind when the children are taken away from the mothers? What happens to the mind when children witness mothers being raped by soldiers? What happens when land is taken away and burned and people are killed and lakes are created above towns where people of color lived. And so what ends up happening is there's an expectation of pain. Mm -hmm. There's an expectation to suffer because that's what, that's what has happened repeatedly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the expectation that the husband will not be there with the wife. There's the expectation that he will have to go and sleep with other women because, and this is not just, I know this is not just an African-American thing, but I'm looking at the fact that how many men were taken from the wives on the plantations. There's the expectation that the man is not supposed to actually be there in the home to assist with the woman. And we got to ask ourselves, what narrative have we actually followed? And when when did we have or do we have an opportunity to make change for ourselves? Mm -hmm. You know, and and so this expectation, you know, the narrative has been changed. So even if you were a dynamic, phenomenal uh, scientist, even if your history shows that that you were seemingly unconquerable if your history shows that you were brilliant but yet the narrative that has been pressed upon you says that you are inadequate in every way shape and form then not only does one generation take on that concept but every other generation after that continues that why because the society re-traumatizes all that has already happened. And so when you see police brutality, it's a re-traumatizing re, -tra it's re people. Mm -hmm. And not rich people. Mm -hmm. Re-traumatizing people of color. When you can't get, get a job, re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. When you're arrested constantly, you know, um, for any little thing, re-Trump is doing it again right. and reinforcing that trauma. And mm -hmm. so we have to begin to shift the narrative the same way in that, that people of color are re-traumatized. People, we got to ask ourselves, what is the generational trauma that's going on 
with people who live in fear and yet look outward from themselves and say, I'm still better than you. They won't admit to their fears. I'm better than you. What, what kind of trauma goes on with people who have a history of killing, stealing, and destroying? We're so quick to call our stuff generational curses, but we won't look and say, no, really, that's a curse too. A curse is looking at a curse. Mm -hmm. Why don't we stop? I, I don't really say curses anymore because it's time to heal. And a curse means that, that it, it happened outside of myself and that not only do, do I not have power, but it's, it signifies that my ancestors didn't have power when in actuality they did. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves and then take responsibility for what part did, you, did we play in that? We got to know our history. So if you know that it was Northern African Muslims, that were also a part of expanding the slave trade. Mm -hmm. We play a part in that. And we play a part not just because of the color, but because people, all of Africa was African, was black. Know your history. So how did they differentiate themselves according to their faith, according to how they worship, according to the culture of a tribe. No one is the same. And so when you begin to ask yourself and when you get real history and you see the Moors that were over here and, and the, um, and when you know that the original map of Africa, when they mapped it out to go over there and desecrate and rape and plunder Africa, then you realize that the original map, what did it say? What did they call the area where they, where they were getting people from? You know what they called it? They called it Judah. Hmm. Wake up. If we come out of the matrix, when we decide to come out the matrix, you might discover that a lot of things that we actually believe were lies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what are we going to do about it? Right. You know? What change will we make? Right. Take your life back. Take your life back. That's it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, TLC. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Tia, uh, I'm waiting for Attorney Mac to pop in. He's here, but he's on the back end. But I have some, I want you to see this and from last week. Okay. What is generational trauma that isn't just an experience by one person? It's extended from one generation to the next. It can be silent, converted, undefined, surfacing through nuances and inadvertently taught or implied throughout someone's life from an early age onward. It is theorized that generational trauma 
can be induced through. It is theorized that generation trauma can be induced through a fetus being exposed to chemicals involved in the maternal stress. Yeah. 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 So, Such as cortisol that impact future development. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it changes the individual's DNA mm -hmm. as a result of traumatic experiences that are theoretically being passed down through generations. Right. So trauma can manifest itself through stress, anxiety, fight or flight. And other heightened alert systems in our brain and bodies, but intergenerational trauma can also mask itself through learned beliefs, behaviors, and patterns that become ingrained. This kind of wiring impacts personalities, relationships, parenting, communication, and views of the world. Generational trauma, intergenerational trauma is defined as the transmission of historical oppression and its negative consequences across generations. The symptoms, what are the symptoms of generational trauma? Hypervigilance, think about it. A sense of shortened future. How many young African males had the expectation of not even making it to 20? Mistrust, aloofness, high anxiety, depression, panic attacks, nightmares, insomnia, that you can raise your hand if you if you if you hitting any of these a sensitive fight or flight response and issues with self-esteem and self-confidence experts are learning more about how trauma affects the immune system it may lead to a dysfunctional immune system one that's either too active or not active enough this can result in more autoimmune diseases or greater propensity for illness. Everyone is susceptible. You are not. Glory to God. Listen, you can't run, you can't hide, you can't deny it. And you, we can no longer take this information and shove it under a carpet or a rug and expect that it goes away. And I'm gonna tell you something else. We cannot even erase history to make it go away. Because if we don't face it head on and heal, it gets, it's gonna expand. But there are specific populations that are more vulnerable due to their histories, being systematically exploited, enduring repeated and continual abuse racism and poverty are all traumatic enough to cause genetic changes and i'm gonna offer something else mm -hmm. if you have a history of killing and raping people and if your history has that in it, that's generational trauma too. Mm -hmm. And that's ugly. And it's monstrous. 
but we can turn this around and we can take our life back and we can change our DNA. And there is evidence of that, but I'll pull that up later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to bring our guests on. Miss Lin Linda Marie Miller. Hi, Linda. Oh, you've unmuted me. Oh, good. I thought I had to mute myself. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Linda Marie Miller. I am the owner of Empowered Living and Speaking and the founder of a nonprofit called One Shared Humanity that just fights for a world that works for everybody, not just for white people. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I do. And I've yeah. met you, I think, on Facebook. I'm maybe watching on Dion's or through Susan Brown, who I am an advocate for. Yeah. My dear friend, Susan Brown, who's incarcerated in Michigan. I live in North Carolina. So that's yeah. who I am. Well, welcome to our platform. I'm so great grateful for you. Um, I want to bring on, I'm going to talk about Susan now, and then we're going to talk about her again at the end. My favorite so, subject. Yes. This is Susan Brown. Yeah, that's my, my dear friend. Can, can I talk about her? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I, I met Susan through, she was on a podcast uh, Amplified Silence. And I know the person who runs Amplified Silence, his name is Kyle Robinson, and he's a friend of mine. And he learned in his conversations with Susan that she was an artist, and I'm also an artist. So he called me, he said, hey, there's an incarcerated person, woman, would you talk to her? Because she's an artist, and I don't know anything about that artist stuff. So I said, sure, I always talk to an artist. Now, I'm a 65-year-old white woman that's never even stepped in a jail. So it, it much, I don't know nothing about incarceration or anything. And so um, I was... I didn't know. I just thought I would talk to her, see what she wanted. Maybe I could support her, send her supplies. Then got, of course, educated in what it is to be an incarcerated artist and what you're not allowed to have, which is just about everything you're not allowed to have. So I wasn't able to help her in that way. But we started talking in May, end of May or June of last year. And uh, she is now my best friend. Uh, we talk at least twice a day. Um, I love her dearly. And over the course of getting to know her, uh, I have become, you know, 800% committed to her release through Clemency. So we started this project, the final push project, Clemency for Susan Brown. And we are, and I am in, intent on, uh, on doing everything in my power and some to uh, make sure that it happens. Uh, I'm committed to this year and um, all all things seem to be pointing in that direction, that that's a possibility and um, not a possibility, not a probability, but an inevitability. And that's what I'm counting on. So uh, that's it. I'm just a huge supporter of her. She's a phenomenal artist. Her work has been shown in Europe. Her, she's got three pieces getting ready to be seen at an art show in University of Michigan. And she has also gotten into the Ann Arbor Art Festival, which I've been trying to get into for years and haven't been able to. So <laughs> she's a fantastic artist. Um, I think you're going to share a QR code where people can go to her link tree uh, and go to her Facebook page where right now she has sent me uh, jewelry last week and I posted it to sell uh, for, um, for, uh, to support the efforts. We got five, that postcard thing that, that she showed. We, we have 500 of those. We're sending them out to key people, uh, legislators, people in Michigan that can, um, that have uh, influence that can uh talk to the right people to help her in addition to all the people that are already uh, helping her the governor knows who she is uh, so it is um 
anyway, so if you'd go there, you can learn all about her. Uh, I, I'll, I will share this briefly because she did give me permission to share this, that the reason Susan Brown, she's serving life in prison without the possibility of parole because when she left uh, uh, an emotionally, physically abusive man, uh, about a year later, she was with someone else, eight months pregnant, and her estranged husband uh, decided that no one else would have her. He uh, raped her, stabbed her in the abdomen when she was eight months pregnant. And in defending her life and the life of her unborn child, uh, she killed him. And she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for uh, for premeditated murder, as if a woman can premeditate a murder that she, that would mean she was premeditating being being uh, sexually assaulted. Um, so, uh, but in, in, a, in any case, and even in Michigan, she, that was in 2003. Had it been in 2006, the Stacey Barker law would have had the judge required to turn to the jury and say, a woman is permitted in Michigan to defend herself even to death if she is being sexually assaulted. But that law came three years too late for Susan. It wasn't retroactive, but it is a huge impetus to uh, having people realize that this is um, enough is enough and that she gets to get clemency now and come home. So I'm one of many people waiting for that. So that's it. Yes. That's, that's my dear friend, Susan Brown. Yes. And Susan Brown will be uh, joining us next month. Um, so I, when I, I met Susan Brown through Dion, listening to his platform, and then one day I was on there listening and I heard you speak. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, and then when you said, um, I think I had by this time have talked to Susan online um, through Dre Pay. And, um, but I didn't know you guys were like, you know, best friends until you said it, you know, as you were talking. But um, what struck me um, when you were talking was um, the, the training that you do mm -hmm. and the, um, that's what I want you to talk about. Because okay. All right. We, um, <laughs> well, these are things that I guess I, well, I feel like we all need to hear. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, okay. I'll share that. I, I didn't want to talk about myself that much, but uh, a few, <laughs> a number of years ago, I was in a speaking competition with uh, 36,000 contestants and it's multiple levels. It's called the world championship of public speaking. And out of 36 contestants, I, was in the top eight. So when you're in the top eight, it's a big deal. And you have a platform that you're speaking your final speech to 50,000 people. It was virtual that year. It was virtual because COVID had happened. And it was the first time I'd ever entered the contest. Majority of the people that are, that you get that far, you've been trying to get to that far for your 20 years. So it was my first time entering it. So it was an honor to be in the final eight. And I did not care about winning. I cared about having 50,000 people to talk to. And I decided that I was not going to waste that audience. And I delivered a speech that you can go see on, uh, on YouTube. It's called pretending not to know. And it was a speech about uh, a dear friend of mine whose son died and I helped him and I won't tell you about it, but in any case, within seconds of that speech being completed and it's only seven minutes. So it doesn't take much time to listen to, um, my phone lit up. My, I mean, the world blew up for me um, because uh, this issue 
what people, what in, in this instance, white people are pretending not to know is that their silence is the sole reason that racism in this country continues. So mm -hmm. it led to me doing a training called Whites Walking Willing. It used to be called Recovering Racists, but as you can well imagine, a lot of white people don't like that R word. It's like the it's like the N word for white people, racist. They don't like that word. To me, it's just a six letter word. Doesn't have energy to it unless you assign it to it. And if it bothers you as a white person to be called it, then you just don't know the definition. And the definition clearly indicates that if you're socialized as white in this country, in the U.S., there's a high likelihood you were raised with racist ideology about people you know nothing about. So, um, and that is the definition of racism, racist. Um, and we all, white people always think of racism the systemic racist, the racist system. And, you know, the way I think about it is what's the phone number of the system? Who is the system? Where is the, the, the system is just people. That's it. Mm -hmm. So when we start, stop saying racism is outside of us, it's something out there, that big, bad thing. Racism is not the enemy. The enemy is self-interest of a dominant party. And that is white people in this country. So I work with white people, white affinity groups, and with other groups that are having trouble with their white people, realizing that racism is, is a thing and realizing that white people are at the core of it. I don't even like the word ally because um, ally is someone who helps. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm an ally to black people. I'll help black people. Well, you know, I say, why should white people created racism. Why don't allies, black people be allies to white people? Why don't white people take the lead in eliminating it, the mess they created? Right. Mm -hmm. And you, and the reason most white people don't in my experience is that they don't know history. They don't think white people really had it's just racism, just all of a sudden rained down on everybody and it just got here and, you know, slavery did the whole thing. And it was, you know, so, uh, you know, and then you have the woman King and what white, uh, superiority people are saying about that movie and blaming it again. Well, see, black people caused all their problems with this. So you, you get a lot of this white nonsense. So I work with white people and there are only white people in the room so that, you know, I start off by saying, look, there's no black people in this room to impress. So we're going to speak facts. We're going to tell the truth mm -hmm. and we're going to share uh, the truth of, of what we did that, that we are, um, that, and it continues. And, and, and unfortunately, um, it, it, when we start addressing it from, let's just go with diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, because I come from four decades in corporate America until I retired a few years ago, uh, even DEI programs are racist. You know, we're, we, we call them microaggressions. Well, they're not. They're traumatic violence that, that create trauma for uh, employees at a company. And then we even have, uh, and, and, in many cases, Black-owned DEI companies going into white people and saying, well, we don't want you to lose your job by calling out racism. We just want you to, you know, mention to people, you know, all these cute ways to go about it. My stand is, I don't care if you lose your job, because guess what? If you're white, you can get another job pretty quick, probably. Right. Mm -hmm. So until, in, in, until until white people are willing to pay the price to say enough um, I think that it's uh, it's problematic in in 
because you know we remained silent and you saw you know after the murder very public murder of george floyd white people got all up in arms you know and they got all and they were out marching they were doing all this stuff and then back to sleep you know back on the couch not doing anything and mm -hmm. so i'm a i'm a I'm, i kind of this this is the book that is a is required reading in the course that that i do and it, we work through this book over the core period of a year and if you're if you know any white people out there you need to buy them this book mm -hmm. uh stand from the beginning by ibram x kenny the definitive history of racist ideas in america it is white history it is this is the unfiltered history of this country. And until you know this, and until this looks like an evangelist Bible where you've got notes and you've got stickers and you've got everything in the margin, until you know this, you don't know anything about what the historic history of what white people in this country have done and the trauma and the damage that they have done um, to, and, and, you know, white, and it's, it's just whiteness. So my tagline is, step out of your whiteness and into your humanity because whiteness is not humane. There's nothing mm -hmm. about whiteness that's humane uh, and it hurts white people too, but we don't even, you know, we don't even get into that, but so that's kind of what I do. So, and right now I'm committed to, there are 203 law schools in this country that are committed to becoming anti-racist law schools. And this all happened as a result of the George Floyd, uh, very public murder. So, but they're having issues because they've committed to it but you have white professors <clears throat> who don't think it's a problem, mm -hmm. who don't think that their racism is a problem, even though, and these are attorneys, this is law professors that are attorneys, even though they're only 5% of the practicing attorneys in this country are black. And that number hasn't changed in 20 years. So it's no, it's no question that when someone is a, accused of a crime there the high likelihood is you're going to get some white attorney who doesn't even want your case unless you've got a lot of money right so right. until we start creating even attorneys in this country that have a representative share of, of of the population you know that doesn't help especially when we talk about criminal justice and i think that's one of the big problems in criminal justice and the supreme court that we have right now in November, actually heard two cases, uh, Students for Fair Admission, uh, a case versus them and University of North Carolina, the largest public university, and Harvard, a private university, because they are, are and it, all indications point to the Supreme Court will roll back the clock, just like they did with Roe v. Wade, to pre-civil rights, and they were are eliminating affirmative action, yes. which means universities, colleges, law schools, medical schools will not be permitted to know the race of an applicant. So all these universities that are committed to creating diverse uh, programs will have no way of doing that. So, um, and it's really impacting the 203 law schools that are committed to becoming anti-racist law schools. Uh, so anyway, so there's a lot to be afraid about uh, with what the Supreme Court is doing, even with some cases they heard in um, some other cases they heard, but we're not here to talk about the Supreme Court. But that'd be a great topic for you when we talk about you know, know. what the Supreme Court is up to recently. It's it's frightening what they're doing. But. Yeah, I mean, they already said that innocence, that was last summer, uh, is not enough. So, you know, now that's affecting wrongful convictions. And then I just was listening to this white guy talking about reverse racism. And I was just blown away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Attorney Mack, welcome. Well, first of all, my apologies, J. Love, for being uh, late getting here. It was unavoidable. But I tell you, I am certainly riveted to this screen and our guest, yeah. you know, uh, because there's so much that I want to say in support of what she is saying. Um, and I guess for me, when I look back at my own indoctrination, growing up, watching Tarzan movies, realizing that Tarzan, only white man in a thousand miles in any direction, was not only the king of the jungle, he could whip any gorilla, any hippo, any lion, okay, any zebra, any giraffe, and whip any group of black men in a thousand mile radius, okay? All this man had to do was scream and everybody shivered. So my thing is for me, when I look back at the racism that as a youth I was indoctrinated into, and I hear somebody, one of my Caucasian sisters, be brave enough to talk about systemic racism in the history of this nation and what white supremacy has done, it is a great thing. You know, I heard a woman named Sarah Huckabee Sanders say after President Biden had given his State of the Union how proud she was to fight against any kind of critical race theory or uh, 1619 history in the state of Arkansas and how proud she was. And this woman had the audacity to talk about how proud she was of the Little Rock Nine and how, you know, how far we've come. So a classic example of talking out of two sides of your mouth at the same time, at the same time. So, and what I'm saying is what I've realized uh, in general and in society and in, in, in next general, but with juries in specific, and including black jurors, I might add, Jay Love and, and our esteemed guest and Tia Little John, is that presumption of the superiority of the system. So if people are really honest with you, if they're really honest, and I challenge jurors on this all the time, most people feel you would not be charged if you weren't guilty. Most people feel the prosecutor would not take the time, the judge wouldn't take the time, the police wouldn't take the time, this victim, this poor victim, wouldn't take the time to come in here unless you in fact were guilty. It just doesn't happen. So there have been times when I boy dear jurors uh, who haven't been black, and I tell you, some of them seem so hell-bent on proving to white people they can be trusted, you know? You know, and, and one of the greatest examples I've seen of that is on our own U.S. Supreme Court. There's a man on there by the name of Clarence Thomas, a man not only black, but like mailbox black. And what I'm saying is, is so interested in outwhiting the other whites on the on the court. It is absolutely fantastic. His key vote was crucial in eliminating key sections of the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965. His vote was crucial in the uh, elimination of a woman's elimination of a woman's right to choose, etc., etc., etc. A man who could easily be mistaken for an average Negro had he been in Memphis, Tennessee, okay, at the wrong time and the wrong place before he could get out. Oh, I'm with the system card and play it. 
So when I hear this discussion, you know, um, I'm glad to take part in it. I think what our sister is saying is absolutely true. And, you know, and we've got to keep confronting it because we have white supremacy in this nation, which is really not new, by the way, worldwide. If, if, if you look before the United States was formed, there are always people that are in power that will find reasons to subjugate other people. You know, the children of Israel were 400 years in bondage because the Egyptians actually thought they were superior to those people. And they made laws to, to perpetrate that, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I don't want to take up all the time here, but I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of this, Jay Love. And uh, I'll have to give my introduction some, some other appropriate time, lest we uh, <laughs> okay. fall short. <laughs> all but, right. Go ahead, turn it back. Well, but but if you let me, I mean, if, if you let me. <laughs> Look here, look here, look here, look, J Love. You ain't got to tell me twice. So I'm saying, this. you know, you know, you know, for our sister here, Linda, Hugo J. Mack is my name, attorney at law. Um, a man in the state of Michigan, an attorney with actually two bar licenses, one horizontal P30997, issued me by the state bar of Michigan, the other uh, vertical. <laughs> which is not funny, 302506 issued me by the Michigan Department of Corrections. So, so I, I've got two bar numbers, but I, I, people rarely get them confused. So uh, candidate for Washington County Prosecutor Attorney because in 2020, because I believe the people best qualified to solve the problem are people who have lived through and experienced the problem, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is what I say, uh, Sister Linda, if I don't know what state you're from, but if you ever come to Detroit or Michigan, if you ever find yourself on Trouble Boulevard, <laughs> push, pull, tow, drag, haul that car to Max Street, Max Street, and park in my virtual underground garage. When there, call the Freedom Line, 734 239 3118. The Freedom Line, 734 239 3118. The Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. And if you allow me a little entertainment interlude, J-Love, while people, are writing that, while people are writing that number down, you know, excuse me while I do the boogaloo. Okay, the Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. I did endorse this announcement. Brought to you by the one and only king of Russia, Scotland, and Harlem. I love you. Thank you. All right, I turned you back. Got your uh, your uh, intro in. Robert T, are you still there? Robert? Yes, I am. I'm still here. I was still trying to become more visible. Oh, no worries, Robert T. <laughs> So, so uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm -mm, no, I, was go just, ahead. I was just going to say, Reverend T, we want you to join in on the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was getting ready to say something. I just was trying to make sure I didn't interrupt uh, our attorney, Matt. Yeah. And um, I wanted to um, also, you know, get into, I think that uh, we had a, um, someone had also put up there about white women benefiting from affirmative action, which indeed they did. Uh, yeah, Beulah Walker said, hey, Beulah. 
And hello, everybody out there. Mm-hmm. Um, she said she questions. Uh, the question is, um, you know, as far as white women benefiting from affirmative action, she said, correct me. And, you know, I, thank you for that question, because and it is true. They have. But however, we need to understand that although white women have indeed benefited from affirmative action because it included all minority groups, uh, affirmative action did. Um, however, they have not received the unfair advantages that other groups have had to face. And I think that's what um, we are, um, you know, saying that they they did benefit. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of other people. I mean, I, I graduated from University, University of Michigan with uh, on a scholarship, on an academic scholarship based upon the color of my skin. And two, I was a woman. And so I was probably a double minority. So they were satisfying a quota at that time. Now, if you went to University of Michigan and as an African-American and you made it through, uh, by all means, uh, you earned that degree. And so uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that I, I was glad to have received that, that scholarship. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, they, they called it something else, but it was definitely a minority scholarship. And as a woman, any woman could have received that. And there were other women and, and um, other minority groups also that had were recipients of that same scholarship. So we need to know that there are, go ahead, Attorney Matt. Oh, oh no, no, no. You know, you know, Reverend Tia, I can't see you, but I see your avatar and there's this little flashing circle around you like a halo every time you yeah. talk, you know, so you definitely have an aura around you, whether you know it or not. But I, I didn't know that you, I don't know that you could see me. So you, so yeah. you can't see me, right? I can see you. Oh, okay. All I right. can see everybody. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I wanted to say this in terms of the far-reaching effect of racism and, and white supremacy. You know, mm-hmm. when the 13th Amendment was being debated and pushing towards enactment, you know, there are a lot of white women who were opposed to black men's inclusion in that because uh, um, in, in terms of full citizenship and, 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 and when it expanded to 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 voting rights they said no 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 white women need to be included first you know and then we can get to blacks and and other minorities and other disparate groups so some supremacy was there from 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 white women who did not want that advancement in terms of black men jumping ahead of them and that is a theme that is carried on if you notice for example in the women's movement well, black women really weren't a big part of the women's movement. I mean, to be honest about it. I mean, there were certain aspects of it where women joined together, but in terms of black women having the right to vote, that really didn't occur to like 1965, okay? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it didn't occur, with, what is it, the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote? Was it the 19th Amendment? Um, so, so what I'm saying is, and I, I'm, I'm gonna say this also, in the state of Michigan, you remember mm-hmm. Proposal 2, all of you, and, and for the benefit of uh, Sister Linda, Proposal 2 mm-hmm. was a proposal to do away with affirmative action in, in public institutions in the, in, the, in the state of Michigan, okay? Yeah. So um, 
there was a phrase that was opposed to proposal two says proposal two wrong for you okay but what happened in that instance you know you had uh you had jennifer granholm and you had debbie stabenow who i believe were running for um ele uh, election re-election what have you and that cycle yeah. and what i'm saying is both of them got elected comfortably elected re-elected comfortably but yet uh -huh. proposal two was passed so what, what does that tell you it tells you that everybody who voted for debbie stabenow and Governor uh, 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 Granholm did not vote to preserve affirmative action. That's what I'm saying, J. Love and crew. That's what I'm saying. So you have to understand there was definitely some splitting of allegiances there where we could support it. I voted for them too because they're best qualified. But two women who happened to be white, but we could not, as Democrats and quote unquote progressives, go on to defeat Proposal Two. So the, the, the stream of, of racism and supremacy is there not only with, with men, but is there with women also, J-Love and crew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's yeah. right. Go ahead, Linda. Yeah, I would say that women are, are more um, insidious than, than men are. Um, I mean, you know, that... A lot of women say, well, we don't run the system. It's the white patriarchy. But I mean, who raised these men? Who gave birth to them? Who, you know, socialized them, right? It's it's women. So you know, we can't separate ourselves from it. And and I and and I'll a personal story of myself is I have a son. And uh when I was raising my son, I thought I was leading by example. I didn't do anything that was racist. His best friend in the cul-de-sac was uh, Trevon, a, a black young man. And so I thought, okay, you know, he's got it all. Well, then he went off to college and he got, in, we're in the South, got born again at, at school. And uh, I started to realize that in the South, religion, uh, Southern Baptist white churches are some of the most racist organizations and he started spewing this racist nonsense then he joined the military he became a uh, you know he joined the military for a six-year contract and they indoctrinated in it there's more racism in the this the system of the military in this country than i would have ever dreamed and i don't recognize my son anymore and he doesn't talk to me anymore because of what i do in the world and he's, you know, he's, he's adopted. Now he's found his birth family and, you know, they're hunters and they wear camo and they go out shooting and they are, they have big barbecues and they all are Southern Baptist and they're all a bunch of racists. And, um, and so I've lost my son for, but it, he was, so this is, this is the reason I'm telling that story as a white woman with children it isn't enough to stand as an example, like do like I do, be like me. You have to make sure they know what's happening in the world and what the history of this country is. They have a deeply ingrained understanding. So they are, in, they are indoct in, in uh, they've been inoculated before they go out in the world because 
out in the world, in the very white world, in his very white lane, in his very white neighborhood, in his very white schools, you know, he had a private education from the time he was 18 months old. They indoctrinated him. They socialized him as a, as a white male, and he has grown up to be their proudest. And I don't recognize him. And um, so it's been my greatest heartbreak. But I say that as a, as a warning to white women who, who think that you don't need to talk about it, um, you, that you don't need to focus on it, because you have to in order to inoculate them against what they're going to come against in the world. And um, so that's it. So uh, that's what I wanted to say. But women, in that way, women are, and women are uh, the ones in, in corporate America to, um, to claim, I worked hard for what I have, even though they know that what they have is on the backs of other people. Um, they use that. Well, women didn't, ha we were discriminated against for a long time. So I'm, this is mine. And I, I think that, that the world likes that, uh, that separation uh, that, that try to pit black women against white women, because if black women and white women join forces, I, I think we could march on Washington and resolve this pretty quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, I've, I don't know if Jay Love has heard me say this before, but I think black women hold more power in this country than they actually, actually know. And that if black women in this country went on strike for 30 days, um, this country would crumble. Um, white people would have to uh, take care of their own ailing parents and that are in nursing homes. Uh, they'd have to take care of their own. They'd have to, no hospitals would have services or people to care for patients in hospitals. Uh, Black women in this country have the care and concern and the community of love that holds this country up. And I think they don't, they don't know that, that they have that much power. Um, but anyway, so those are my thoughts on it. I don't know if I rambled on. I apologize for that. No, you're good. You're good. I was just thinking about uh, what you were saying and in regards to religion and how it affected your son. And, and if we can be honest, Religion plays a big role in the trauma of Black people as well, you know, because we grew up in these, um, in this religion piece. And so we hold all this shame and all this, you know, hiding stuff and not speaking on things and because of the religious piece and until something really goes bad. And so religion plays a big role in it. And even when we were talking about, you know, back in with Trump ran, it was all these religious people and white people, but religious people and some black who were really, you know, being really racist and just really um, out here, you know, putting it out here, these racist folks. And so, that has to, a lot to do with the trauma that, you know, well, I think I I'm always, gonna... I always wondered if it wouldn't go a long way to uh, moving us down the field a bit. If every church in this country actually represented a black Jesus on the cross, because it's highly unlikely Jesus mm -hmm. was white, but right. when you have the idea of God and Jesus being able to be drawn on a piece of paper by kindergarten kids and they draw him as a white man uh, when he isn't, it just shows that, uh, and I always wonder if that wouldn't make a, you know, a difference across the board if we, if we started there. Um, and so those are my thoughts on the religion piece of it, but it's, it is so white women 
are the ones hiding behind all the benefits that they have and all of the privilege that they have. And, um, and I, I always say, it makes me nuts when I hear white people say, I unlearned racism. I read a book. I read that Robin D'Angelo book and I unlearned racism now. And I say, I, how do you unlearn English? You can't unlearn it. It's mm -hmm. in your, it's, 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 embedded in you so deeply. And this is the key. This is the thing. And I think you can't eradicate it. You can only become conscious of it and choose in any moment it starts to arise in me. There's a Karen in me. There's a Karen in every white woman that in the right instance, under a right stressful in something situation, I would be at risk of coming out of my mouth. But if you are educated about the history of this country and you become committed to your vision for the world, you can, I can stop in the moment and choose from my vision instead of from the racist ideology I was raised in. And the Karen never comes out of my mouth, but women, uh, any white woman in this country who doesn't think there's a Karen in her that under the right circumstances would come out is not telling the truth. That's right. just what I want to say about that. I have a question for everyone. Um, Marcy, um, she wrote this. I wonder what can we teach mixed race children? Want to start a new chapter? Well, you know, um, I, I was just going to say that we uh, hide behind the vision, mm -hmm. and when we recognize the vision, recognize the ego, recognize that there is judgment that people are operating with a judgment of saying i'm better than in order to try and um feel good about themselves they need to criticize somebody else mm -hmm. and and really it's low self-esteem so to me anybody who is racist automatically not only has ignorance but low self-esteem and so when you talk about um, healing, you know, with, with mixed children, when you, <laughs> when you say mixed, if we don't get to humanity, we're not getting there. If you can't teach each history, because, you know, people will say, well, we just need to all come together and, and, and separate separation and division has not helped us heal as not only as a one country, but globally as a people, as a people, dividing does not help mm -hmm. divide and conquer. So you have elite people pressing down and re-traumatizing everybody else. And then we hold on to these narratives. It is utterly impossible today to go into a family and say, we're going to divide. Because I don't know about any others, anybody else's family, but if you look at my history, we got everything in it. We have everything in it. If you look at my relatives and you come and you come into our uh, reunion, you're going to see everybody. <laughs> and I love them all. And I don't want anybody to not be in my family. Mm -hmm. And so because of this, we have to stand upon love. 
Love who you are. Teach the history. I don't care if it's German. Look, my my great grandfather was German. Who knew? On my mother's side. I didn't know. You know, and then, but most of me, of course, is Ethiopian. But I know who I am. I know I got Cherokee. I know my great grandmother on my father's side is Blackfoot and my grandfather is Cherokee. I know that he was labeled Negro when he was already here. So if you can know your history and a lot of people don't know, but you can try to know a little bit more, at least the history of America. And this is the problem is that if they taught the whole history, like everybody has been saying, then we would know truth. If they taught the truth, we would not be going through this. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's time to heal. How, how do we, how do we heal from these atrocities? from generational trauma. And this is the beginning. That's why I'm glad we have turned a moment into a movement. And I I, I know I'm a, an expressive person and usually I'm, I have all these expressions while Linda was talking and while Jay was talking and attorney Mac and I couldn't even put my, you all couldn't even see my hands going or anything, but I was just all over the place because this is so needed it's so true and this is the beginning of the healing and i thank god for linda and her work and that had to be a a very heartbreaking situation with her son but i'm gonna tell you something in that it plummeted you into your purpose and that is what is fulfilling and i i, I thank god that you said yes to that work because well, and, we, we all are, we all have to do that at some point. Go ahead. Yeah. And it, you know, I get, I get, after I presented that speech a couple of years ago, and since then I get hate mail, I get death threats, a lot from Oklahoma. I wouldn't recommend anybody go to Oklahoma anytime soon. I know I don't want to go to Oklahoma, but, mm -hmm. but, but it's, be, but it's because there's a, and I don't, when I, when that happens, I try to respond to people because there's a, there's a great poem by Edwin Markham and it's only four lines and it goes like this. It's called outwitted. It says, um, he drew a circle to keep me out, a heretic rebel, a thing to flout, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. So I think if we, if we, with love to you, draw that circle around everybody, but, and start with education because it, until white people in this country are educated, uh, I don't think anybody's going to be free. And it's, uh, you know, what used to be the super predator in the 90s that indoctrinated minds into being afraid of, of black men. Now it's law and order, mm -hmm. law and order. It's just, it's, it's racist commentary. It's, you know, the Truth and Sentencing Act. Who wouldn't want truth and sentencing? We don't want lies in sentencing. But an average person like me doesn't know what that means. 
that means no early pro that no nothing no behavior that you have in while you're incarcerated is going to make a difference for you um mm -hmm. no second look for anything so we don't know on the outside so we people have to get educated and i'm all for the healing tia but with the continued i mean we have now um, you used to be able to, I don't know, during civil rights, count on the, the Democratic Party to be uh, less racist. But I'm not sure you can count on that with any either of our political parties, because you see the Democrats tell you what they need to tell you to get your vote. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a speech by um, by Malcolm X the other day. I got a recording all his speech, all of the speeches that he delivered. It was one in 1963 called um, You Are a Political Chump. And. It is, and it's 1963, but he could be giving it today and it would be just as relevant how black people, the number of black people voting really control the party, but either party promises black people what they want. I mean, for me, I'm a reparationist because I think reparations in this country would do a lot towards healing. I just think it would be um, money can resolve a lot of things, especially in, in, in eliminating the generational wealth gap. So, but that kind of stuff, they even talk about that in, in uh, political parties, we'll talk about reparations, but nothing happens about it for the last 20 years, last, you know, 30 years that it's been keep bringing, uh, brought to the legislature. I think it made it further last year than ever before, but, um, you know, fighting for reparations, I think, is key. So how do you create the healing when you have the Supreme Court creating, rolling back time where it will be more trauma? There's a case that was heard in the Supreme Court. It seems uh, like a mundane case. A woman, uh, uh, I think it's a woman, took to the Supreme Court that she doesn't want to have to make wedding cakes for gay people because it's against her religion, right? Mm -hmm. But she is a public service. So but it looks like the Supreme Court is going to say because of her religious beliefs, she can run her business however she wants. I, this might sound crazy, but I don't rule this out happening. Once that happens, you're going to have white supremacists create, creating uh, a church. The Church of the Burning Cross. We believe our religious beliefs prevent us from being able to provide hotel rooms for people that aren't white for it, it, we just rolling it all back with mm -hmm. all sh all sheathed in a bunch of nonsense um but the white but the supreme court is setting the stage for it so how do we create the healing when we've got political parties we've got florida doing what it's doing to make sure nobody uh, is educated uh, um how do we create start healing when the trauma is starting to ramp back up again. I, I have this idea about like this book being taught in libraries on Saturday mornings by white and black women working together because it's not going to be taught in school. I just, I think that train is leaving the station. Um, and um, yeah. And anyway, so that, that's what I was. So how do we do that when the, we don't even get a break in the trauma <coughs> and it looks like it's going to ramp up. I'd love to get someone's idea on that. Yeah, I think, you know what, you're right. I think that what, what has to happen now, and I know it is happening um, in a lot of organizations, a lot of grassroots organizations, um, and some of our um, organizations that have been around for, for a very long time. I know with Michigan Coalition of Human Rights um, and other connected, uh, you know, efforts that we're going into the community now and um, 
telling the story, telling the truth, having the forums that say, this is what happened and having real people with real stories that have witnessed and have been a part of the history. We need to get these stories now because they're, it's up to us to tell the story. And see, a lot of times we, we're, we've been looking outside of ourselves, outside of our communities, outside of our cultures for somebody else to tell our story. You can't tell our story. We have to tell the story to the next generation. What is the problem? The story had stopped being told. Mm -hmm. They weren't telling the story. My mother told me the story. Her mother told her the story. The story was being passed down. And then somewhere along the line, unless it went to the next generation, my children even said, Mama, everybody doesn't know this story when they got to school. And so... You know, you you have those moments, like I, I tell Jay all the time, I have a son named uh, Joshua. I would tell the generational story to my children and, and so they can know the truth and know their power at the same time. Mm -hmm. I had books, I had every, all kinds of things. And uh, Joshua went to school one day and uh, the teacher was getting ready to let him know that they were gonna be celebrating Christopher Columbus Day and he raised his hand. Now he was only in kindergarten. And he said, we don't celebrate Christopher Columbus. That was part of slavery. <laughs> but he was able to say that at five. We need to ask ourselves in our culture, what have we been telling? What are we teaching? What's important? What have we put as idols in front of our children? And we get to change that. Mm -hmm. We get to change that. Go ahead, Attorney Mac. Oh, no. Um, you know, I want to go back to something that I believe uh, Sister Linda was, was talking about in terms of different parties and people being uh, progressive versus not so progressive. You know, I'd like to remind everybody, and I'm sure you all know this already, but, you know, there was a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, all right? And uh, when we talk about the, uh, the ability to vote, the 13th, 14th, 13th eliminated slavery, uh, the, uh, was, was it the, uh, the, the 14th made people citizenship? Was it the 15th that allowed people to vote? I, I, believe, I, I believe that's right. Um, but in any event, I stand by what I said about black women and the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment, it did say sex was eliminated as a basis for, for keeping people out to vote, but it did not apply to black women. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. So what I'm saying is, is this, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, a sharecropper, by the way, from, from Mississippi. And when I think about her and listen to her, it brings tears to my eyes because in, in listening to y'all talk about this, you know, the the Mississippi Democ the Mississippi Democratic uh, Party, all right, didn't want any black people at all. Okay, you know, uh, they made it next to impossible for black people to vote in sixty in sixty four, 
It was called Freedom Summer, I believe it was, in 65, when a lot of black and whites went down to Mississippi to try to help people get registered uh, to vote, you know? And uh, so what I'm saying is, is she challenged, and remember now, Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was the president, all right, the president. And I give Lyndon Johnson a lot of credit for progressive things that went against his white culture and heritage. I mean, he's the one that put nominated Thurgood Marshall for the Supreme Court. No, no other white man had ever done that. No president ever done that. So, you know, he's the one that was pushing the civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation. Okay, but Lyndon Johnson also was the person who wanted Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi uh, Democratic uh, Freedom Party. I can't remember exactly the the uh, the uh, the initials, the, uh, the acronym, but he wanted them crushed because he did not want those Southern white men upset by these black people saying we are going to put a separate slate of delegates for the convention. See, he didn't want that. So he he, he conspired. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. With, with Walter Ruther, uh, you know, to crush that movement, you know, uh, to 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 eliminate them from didn't give them a proper chance to speak in front of the uh, the equivalent of the Ways and Means Committee of the of the Democratic Party. And so what happened was, despite oh I can't remember what percentage of, of Mississippi were black at the time, but um, they, they they didn't have any voting rights there, and it was the Democrats that stopped them from doing that. That was Lyndon Johnson. So that Democratic convention in 1960. 64, that Mississippi delegation was all white. It was all white. And so they ushered Fannie Lou Hamer and them out of the of the uh, of the convention. So okay, Attorney Max, so what's the point? The point is, is that supremacy, even amongst our friends, people we consider friends, is still there, is very, very much still there. I voted for uh, Gretchen Whitmer twice and don't regret it. But Gretchen Whitmer has been less than impressive when it comes to pushing legislation, for example, to restore good time and disciplinary credits, okay, in, in amending the truth and sentencing statutes, okay? She has been less than impressive in that. So, you know, uh, and now, and by the way, I don't know if Sister Linda knows this, for the first time in, what is it, 40 or 50 years, the Democrats control the governorship. They control the state house and they control the Senate. Okay. So Democrats control all three major branches of government. So now let's see what they do now that they have that authority. I've challenged them publicly. Do something about truth and sentencing. Okay. Do it. We didn't get the votes and support to put it on the ballot um, in, uh, in uh, uh, last year. Although I will say once again, Supremacy comes in a role here. Even when the Supreme Court of the United States was at June of last year, they 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 struck down Roe versus Wade. Was that in June when they struck that down? They yeah. only had a matter of months before the general election in November and had a short window to get enough uh, uh, signatures to put it on the ballot. That initiative to um, memorialize a woman's right to choose, which I support, by the way, in the state constitution, got more ballots than any other initiative in the history of the state of Michigan, okay? Got more signatures. So what, what, what does that show me? That shows me that when people, for their own interests, 
and and we're basically talking about women here, uh, white women and black women for their own interests or challenge. They hurried up and put that on on the on on the ballot. They hurried up and put that on the ballot. But yet, truth and sentencing, which has a disparate impact on black people, we couldn't get that kind of support. J Love, we couldn't get that kind of support. So now the Gretchen uh, Whitmer and the Democrats are there. Now's the time to do something legislatively. And once again, sometimes we can't trust our friends because uh, supremacy and racism has a way of working its way to the surface, just like cream and coffee. Yeah. Um, I just want to say one thing. Now I'll go back to you, Linda. Um, when Gretchen Whitmore ran in the beginning of the first her first four years, she ran on a platform of uh, reforming the criminal justice system in Michigan. And so um, fast forward to COVID, you know, that really showed um, a lot of people um, who these people really are. People were dying of COVID. The women's facility in Michigan, uh, it, it was terrible in there, inhumane. And then we have this woman, white woman governor, who promised all these reforms and was all on every CNN and everything because she was challenging Trump, but didn't make really no major <laughs> commitment to making change in her own state. And then at the when it's time for them to vote again, we we have this short-term memory. And we run back and vote for these same people again. And we're still having these same conversations that they were happen, happening in 65 and 60, you know, 60, 68. Uh, the same conversations in 2023. Go ahead, Linda. Yeah, and I don't live in Michigan, but um, do you know how many of the prisons there are uh, private prisons? Because it's... And when I think about her and I think about self-interest drives white people, self-interest drives them first and foremost. And I'll, I'll take care of myself. I'll get elected and then we'll see what we can do for you as long as I can stay and keep getting elected. But when you have the where people are profit centers mm -hmm. for corporate America and prison, the, the contracts for the, the labor contracts that private companies, uh, public companies have with prisons. And private prisons getting uh, incentivized to keep the bets full. How is that going to facilitate any meaningful action by the governor to reduce sentences? Um, I can see why you know there's no programs because we can't elevate people to have a different future when they do get out. Then they'll just come back, and we can keep those contracts going with companies getting the the free labor that they're getting, or the you know the yeah. So how do we fight against that? And I don't know if that's an issue in Michigan. I know that it's an issue across the country, but I don't know if Michigan has handled that or if you do have a lot of private prisons that are making money off of and sending lobbyists to create longer sentences so they can create their workforce and keep them incarcerated longer to, uh, you know, to work for nothing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, because Michigan does is one of the states in the United States that have pretty long sentencing. So and and I'm sure there's plenty of companies that are making benefiting off of those long sentences. Um, so I think it's one thing when you're trying to get business here and you're trying to look like you're tough 
uh, and the whole law and order piece, <laughs> you know, to drive business into the state and and drive business to the state when you have all these people incarcerated and you have a lot of free labor around and you're giving a lot of tax breaks. Of course, you're not going to have this conversation about, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes inside Michigan Department of Corrections. I'm just saying. Attorney Matt. Well, you're just saying the truth. I mean, and 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 the thing of it is, as a person who spent time in public housing, uh, euphemistically, <laughs> where my meals were provided, my bedding was provided, my health was not provided, okay, <laughs> my mental health was not provided, uh, my physical well-being was not provided, but um, there there was a warehousing that was provided. Um, the the truth that I find is, is that most people really, and this is black and whites, um, don't want anything to do with people that are incarcerated. They, they kind of want them to kind of like be the old clothes that get put up in a closet somewhere, or better yet, an attic, or better yet, a basement, you know? You know, yeah, I, I kind of know about it, but all that stuff is up there, you know, I'm doing something else. And the reason I say the racism is not only when I talk about racism and its effect, it's not only white people, it's mm -hmm. the acceptance of black people. You know, I remember, well, maybe seven, eight years ago, there was a move to try to have more halfway houses in Wayne County to be able to have people released, you know, uh, into the community. And there was such an uproar from the citizens of Detroit, and that's the major focus where these houses were to be. Oh, and by the way, Detroit is listed as one of the top dirtiest cities in America. I, I don't know if you if you saw that or not. Uh, uh, the, the Detroit and uh, as number four, four out of hundreds, and Grand Rapids as 218. And that's a whole other topic right there. You know, Detroit, predominantly black and Democrat, Grand Rapids, predominantly white and Republican, but yet they managed to get Grand Rapids in one as in the 218th dirtiest city in America. But I'd rather be 218th dirtiest than fourth. But anyway, which, which is a direct attack actually on blackness in the city of Detroit. But my point is, there were so many black people that rebelled against having those halfway houses in their community because they did not want those criminals, and I'm using their terminology. Next to them, you know, and and so we we we've got to understand, and I think Sister Linda might have touched on this, but I'm definitely going to touch on it. The effects of racism on us, on us, in buying into the system of white supremacy, where we are so engaged in self hate, in self hate, we almost rejoice at the sight and thought of a black person going to prison. Or we rejoice in the fact of, you know, there's only three black people in this company and I'm one of them. We're happy about that. You know, the Sister Linda made an excellent point. 5% of the attorneys, and, and that might be overrated, by the way, in, in the United States of America are black, okay? Let, let's just accept that. Unfortunately for me, with some of the attorneys that I went to school with, they are happy about that. They were happy because it boosted their prestige in, 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 you know, in their jobs, in their positions. 
So it wasn't in their best interest to have other black people there. So th that's self-hate, whether you know it or not. That is self-hate. So for me, and I want to say this, it touches my heart. It makes me very sad. When I was in law school in the mid-70s, there was, I believe it was ABC had about maybe a four, five-week-long uh, docudrama called Roots. Mm -hmm. Called Roots, okay? And I remember uh, when I would go to class, I had some night classes in, in law school, and I remember people talking after class was over with, and they brought up the subject of, of Roots. You know, and this one white woman had the audacity, the audacity to tell me, well, gosh, when you see that, you know, you know, don't you don't you don't you kind of feel, I don't know, kind of uh, ashamed, you know, um, in terms of you benefiting by the suffering of people in the past? I said, excuse me, I'm not benefiting from anything. It's so interesting to me how people would say I'm benefiting when I'm a victim. OK, and because I have an opportunity through the grace of God to go to law school, I'm benefiting by other people suffering kind of a, a, a kind of a backhanded slap like you of yourself really don't deserve to be here. OK, we know you're only here because of the government and affirmative action. So and I, I remember and, and, and I remember supremacy coming up so much, even in scouting in my scouting experience when I was in Boy Scouts. They have a, an organization within the scouts called Order of the Arrow. Okay, Order of the Arrow. It, it's sort of like uh, uh, I don't want to say elite, but advanced group of scouting scouts. And part of the Order of the Arrow was the the heritage of Native Americans. And I remember in one of the shows we're putting on, um, I was dressed as as a Native American. And I remember the the white people, white guys around me, you know, laughing and joking. He said, no, you're an Indian. And I, I thought to myself, how dare you laugh and joke? I'm closer to those people's color than you are. So if anybody should be laughing, joking, it ought to be me laughing at y'all. OK, <laughs> so, you know, and, and but I was made to feel different. OK, and so one thing I've had to try to reeducate myself on being an attorney. Hey, look, folks, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. OK, I, I took an oath. Okay, and so when, when I go into court with laws, I go into court fighting laws that I know in my heart were are largely based in racism and privilege. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So for me, the dynamic as as a black attorney is in keeping my humanity, but knowing some of the tools I'm working on to operate on the body politic are dirty. They're not sterilized. They're dirty. They're dirty. Mm -hmm. So it is a constant struggle for me. And uh, I just ask y'all to keep praying for me because every day I go into court, it hits me more and more the older and older I get, you know? So uh, that that's something we as black people got to overcome. Right. I know, uh, Attorney Matt, I was listening to you and Linda both brought up that the uh, black lawyers are like 5% mm -hmm. of it. But so, and then when you hear that, no wonder black people are 53% of those incarcerated, mm -hmm. you know, period. It's like, it's, it's perfect. It's designed that way, you know, and, and the, so there are 50, 53% of those incarcerated and there's like over 2 million people are in the system right now. And then there is black people are 13% of the population. That's true. 
And so this cycle continues. And so the reason why I want to go back to why we created this platform, because when I was in court with Gerard fighting this wrongful conviction, I noticed that the majority of the people were white people who didn't make an excuse to leave early or be dismissed. They were committed to staying in the course, right? And so when I had the first rally, I didn't have it in the city because it's, for me, I thought this is like preaching to the choir. You already know what's going on. It's the people outside of the, those communities, you know, out where I live, out, you know, further in the suburbs, that we had to retrain or re-create um, a different narrative for them. Because even in court, you know, one of the attorneys said, this is not like CSI, but we bring those biases and those kind of narratives that we see on TV or that we grow up with or that we have been trained into these spaces where people's lives are on the line. And until we, this, um, and Linda asked for what can we do? I think it's on us to have platforms like this, and have more things that we can go out, like Linda, you were saying about teaching the book and retraining people to let go of those narratives. Because what you're seeing and what you're doing is harming a whole class of people mm -hmm. that you've been taught that or trying to believe that this system is working. I think you make a great point too that it's a it's a both and uh, white people get to wake up and that's another thing. Since when is being woke a bad thing? I mean, it's right. like it seems like common sense that you wouldn't want to be asleep, but apparently even woke is uh, you know bad news anymore. But uh, I went a couple of weeks ago. I went to hear Ibram X. Kendi because you know bucket list, my favorite book. Uh, I wanted to meet the man and. He, I've read all of his books, and one of his books called How to Be an Anti-Racist, I, I always said I agree with everything he said except chapter one in How to Be an Anti-Racist because he tells the story of how he was a racist. He said he grew up eating and absorbing and being told all of this negative stuff about people that look like him. And he started to have racist ideas about himself and other black people. And so he said, you know, until he got educated and all of that. But uh, he said, and I said, well, I agree with everything except I don't think black people can be racist because of just the definition of it. Well, he was a couple of weeks ago, he was talking in the, in uh, on stage and he brought up what happened, what's going on in Memphis. And he said that, uh, that black people need to get educated too. Mm -hmm. Because if those five black men really understood what happened in the in the South when there was segregation and only white police officers and they were using dogs and hoses to uh, to attack black people and what black people have fought for in order to eliminate that and be able to be police officers that if those black officers knew that in their core they never would lay a hand on a black man that, right. that the way they did in with Tyree Nichols. So um, when he said that, I, I started, you know, two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, listening to him on stage saying, okay, maybe I can then accept that, that the racist ideology that white people are socialized into 
black people aren't inoculated from that. They're in the whole thing. They, you know, and you talked about it, uh, attorney Hugo, uh, attorney Mac, that, that even in law school, like, um, and, and when you, in the world today, if you ask a white person, who are, who do you idolize the most that's black, they're going to give you the name of a, an entertainer or a sports figure. They're not going to give you the name of a, of an attorney. They're not going to give you the name of a learned professor. They're going to give you entertainment names because mm -hmm. that's what's valued in this country by white people. When black people take a role, dance, sing, rap, throw a basketball, play football, <laughs> whatever. Right. Um, so, but when we actually educate ourselves on the history and on the current situation in this country and white people start naming real idols, uh, that are black and that, and that becomes a normal thing, then, then I think we can shift the narrative. But, um, but he had me actually thinking about that and, and that, uh, black people are no, are not immune to the same kind of feelings, but, and that's where the healing too comes in. I think Tia and what Tia said, educating that your child knew a at, you know, five years old about Christopher Columbus. I don't know. I don't know that that's common in the black community. I know it's not possible in the white community for that to happen, but um, maybe that is possible. And, and someone in the, in the chat had asked about biracial children. And I lived in South Carolina and in South Carolina to this day, um, if you, uh, if you are a young white girl who wants to get back at your parents, you get pregnant by a black young man and that baby is deemed at birth to be special needs. Now I'm the mother of two handicapped children, one severely impaired. So the idea to me that a biracial child is called special needs and it's called special needs because in South Carolina to adopt, you cannot adopt outside of the state. You have to be a resident. So special needs, biracial children are shipped out of state and adopted by families outside of South Carolina because they're unadoptable in South Carolina because wow. they're special needs. Um, wow. And that is, uh, so that just tells you, and I, you know, I mean, it's the South here and, you know, things haven't changed much in the South in, uh, in the last, well, since the formation of this country. But um, anyway, it's, I just wanted to add that to it, but um, it just, I feel honored to be with such brilliant people, way smarter than me, uh, all three of you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what? Way smarter than you. What? <laughs> hey, I'm just an old white lady who decided well, to start telling the truth one day. Well, well, and, well, and, uh, well, well, good. Better, better, better old and, 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 and white and right than young, white and wrong. So I love you and I appreciate you, Sister Linda. I, I really do. Thank you so much. I know when we had attorney Elizabeth um, uh, on a couple of weeks ago, she was talking about South Carolina and she also mentioned the, the death penalty by bringing, they're trying to bring back the, um, what is that? Um, attorney Matt, do you remember? The, the, I'm sorry, the death penalty for, for what now? Did you say? In South Carolina, when attorney Elizabeth was on Franklin, Bess was on. She was talking about in South Carolina bringing back the um, death penalty of. Um, I'm trying to think what's one it was. Uh, the firing, not the firing, the squad. firing squad. Yes, the firing squad. Well, that sounds like South Carolina. We have the governor there um, who uh, belongs to an all-white golf community, all-white golf club, and that still got elected in an all-white golf club. 
in membership that that that, that that's common in South Carolina. And you have well, I've, I've been a, uh, attached the last few days. I don't know if, if any of you have attached to the uh, Alec Murdoch trial down in South Carolina because it's, it's being streamed on YouTube. And I just can't get enough of a white man being held accountable for for his actions. But it <laughs> remains to be seen whether he will be. Wow. Because he is being judged by a jury of his peers, and he's uh, the he's the you know he's the white guy with money down there, and he may he may uh, who knows have bought the jury who knows. Yeah, he's gonna get away with murder. <laughs> well, well, well. Hey, there's, 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 there's a there's a there's a criminal defense attorney in me now here too. So but, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Tiny Matt. But but look 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 all all. All, all I'm saying is I've been kind of riveted to that case too, but what I don't like, I get court TV and they've got the most obnoxious jerk, uh, a, a former prosecutor, Vinny, somebody or whatever it is, but th they've got different shifts on court TV that follow that case throughout the day. And his shift comes on like maybe what, eight o'clock at night, just the most obnoxious, self-serving, egotistical jerk. You know, like he and Sean Hannity are like first cousins, you know, <laughs> and, so, and so but you know, some of the some of the some of the issues that the defense is raising kind of kind kind of interesting. I mean, you know, so I'm really interested to see, but I asked the attorney that was on last week, um, if he were black, would he be getting that gold plated defense that he is certainly getting now? And if I remember right, isn't he from a long line of prosecutors in South Carolina? Uh, yeah, he's he yeah he's got a long history of uh, yeah they they own everything. He's been the his father, his grandfather. Yeah, that's it's the whole thing. So, wow, wow, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested. Uh, wow. Yeah. I tell you what, though, one thing that that uh, in watching it today, and, and it was on YouTube streaming, so it's none of that nonsense narrative by uh, people giving their opinions about. It. I was just oh, listening. Oh, thank to you, the, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm going to start yeah. watching YouTube because of what yeah. you said. Thank you. Yeah, if you don't have to listen to all the rest of it. But what's amazing is, and I turned to my husband, and I said, uh, you know, this is what criminals don't realize, um, and this is what they brought in a timeline, and they pulled together all of the technology that they have access to. Your car knows where you are. Your car knows when you put it in park. If you're yes. if you're rich and you have a car that has OnStar, it tracks where you are. It tracks what that you slowed down on the road. It it gets your miles per hour like every ten feet, and it showed how he was going sixty miles an hour, and he slowed down. Just happened to be slowing down right where they found his dead wife's phone on the side of the road, and then he's speeding back up. And then his phone and how many steps he took with his phone between this minute and this minute, because it counts your steps. It, it shows off your pings. It shows your text. It shows when you deleted it. I'm like, if you don't, if you, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to murder somebody, technology sees you. Your neighbor's got a camera on the front of their house. that's going to see you. You cannot hide from technology today. And they pulled it all together in the uh, prosecution's final witness. It was like three hours. It closed it for me. And so there's no way that man didn't do it because he, it just, everything shows up together mm -hmm. from the technology, which I, and here's the crazy thing, the OnStar, which is the real thing that puts him under, that is what's going to put him, get him a guilty uh, verdict. 
They only got the information last week because his car company said, oh, we can't get it. If that trial had been a month ago, he probably would have walked. But this OnStar, his car information uh, uh, in combination with his phone is just uh, he's he's going down. Uh, I'm, I was cheering today the same way I was cheering when she, uh, Derek Chauvin got uh, convicted. But I'm going to watch it and see. But it is it is very, very interesting. But I do think that um, the judicial system in many cases is turning and, you know, you've got some, you've got white people being held accountable, even down here in the South. We had the case mm -hmm. recently. Um, and, uh, yeah, a couple last year, I think it was, but it's still, you know, we're a long way from, um, yeah. justice for all long yeah. way. Because in, in, in Gerard's case, um, they took his cell phone and hit his cell phone, which he had information that would have exonerated him on. Nobody could find it until later on. So, so yeah, so it works, it works when you, when they want it to work. And then when they don't want it to work, they lose it or can't find it and all kinds of crazy crap. So mm -hmm. get ready. Yeah, I just wanted to, to chime in real quick, you know, um, and they do that because, and, and uh, you know, Linda said it earlier that it is the mindset of the people. So it's not a system all by itself. And we have to keep reiterating that i like what uh one of our viewers had said earlier talked about the unified front there needs to be a unified front a unified front that represents all people i think about south carolina and and when you know the history of america and that at one point it was not called it was not called south carolina or north carolina it was just called the carolinas and the reason why it was called the carolinas is because the Cherokees were sent, the darker Cherokees were sent to the Carolinas. We have to understand the divisiveness that has occurred in our country and then begin to ask the question. When you talk about healing, ask the question, what has affected you spiritually, socially, mentally, emotionally, and physically due to racism? Look at the history. Mm -hmm. What has affected you? What has affected your family, your health? And then take action and let go of the idols. It's time to put every idol down, anything that you have put before yourself, before God. It's trying to, it's time to put it down. It's no time to idolize people based upon their economic status, we have to begin to really look at character and truth. Truth is going to be the answer. When we turn to truth and when we stand on it, that's going to turn things around. Yeah. Yeah, Reverend Tia. So, um, again, Linda, what's the name of that book that you are? Uh, uh, there, there are two. They're stamped from the beginning. The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Everybody needs to read it slowly with a highlighter so you can make tabs, make notes, read it twice, three times if you have time. And and then I, I also say, because there's this big thing in, in this country about um, the great emancipator, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln. This book right here, I don't know if you could see it, Forced into Glory is the true story of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham mm -hmm. Lincoln 
was not a great emancipator of black people. He was a racist and mm -hmm. he had more racist commentary in his speeches, even in his election speech that, than any other president. So mm -hmm. he was not a friend of black people. He was forced into glory and he only, he only uh, signed the emancipation proclamation to, to punish the South. Um, but it only freed 20,000 people when he, and it was freeing 20,000 enslaved people in states that had succeeded from the union and didn't want any part of it. So it, it didn't mean anything to them anyway. He mm -hmm. did not eradicate with the Emancipation Proclamation, did not free a single person on any of the states that were not a Confederate states. Mm -hmm. it, and he threatened them with it at first. He said, I'll give you 25 years to let slavery kind of, and they said, no, we're keeping our uh, slave people. So he is not a, he was not a great guy, but in the end, forced into glory, I, I, I say, it doesn't matter how bad you, what kind of history you've had. I mean, I've had a long history of uh, benefiting from the privilege of my whiteness and in corporate America, especially. And um, it doesn't matter how, how much time has passed. If Abraham Lincoln could in the end do something good, well, you can do something good too. So yeah. it's never too late. Don't double down, step in, step out, st step in, stand up and speak out. And for white people, this is one thing. When you read this book, you act and you embody the knowledge that's in this book. The one thing that keeps white people from not standing up and stepping in is they don't want to be look bad. They don't want to look wrong. They don't want to look stupid. They want to be smartest for a person. So what they do is they stay on the sidelines when a right, a racist or a white supremacist starts spewing lies. If you know the facts, you can come and it builds that muscle of it, of knowledge that you actually can step in and speak with certainty about the history of this country. And you have to exercise that muscle. Now, one thing that also that, um, that in, in my humble opinion is also helpful is I can't, if I had a dollar for every time a black person said, sit down and stop talking, white people have had the stage too long, right? I think white people are need to be speaking to solve the problem mm -hmm. because it's like, well, you know, no, it black, let black people, well, racism was created by white people, white, white people. And I think white people need to stand up and step in and speak out. So um, this is what I say when, no matter who tells me to sit down and be quiet, I'm not going to sit down and be quiet. I'm going to stand up, step in and speak out. And that's what I encourage other people to do after they're educated and after they know, and after they're committed to a different vision for this country than the direction that we're currently moving. Right. But thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. None of us are free until we are free. And knowing the truth, that's what sets us free. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Attorney Matt. Do you have something to say before we leave out? Oh, you're muted. Hold on, Attorney Matt. Let me see if that's me. Okay, there you are. Okay, look, you know, I want to thank you, Jay Love, and I want to thank Sister Linda, and I want to thank Reverend Reverend Tia. You know, uh, the thing of it is, is this. You know, Jesus Christ only had a few people with him, you know, and one of them was a traitor. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> what I'm saying is I want to encourage all of you and I'm speaking to myself, we are making a difference. Linda, at the tre at tremendous risk to herself, and when, when, when I've listened to her and I've read about her, I mean, you know, she's one of those people, one of those Viola Liuzzo kind of risk 
people, you know, mm -hmm. to, to speak up in this time, in this extremely racist environment, extremely racist environment. My heart and my prayers go out to her because it will take our white brothers and sisters to stand up in their own midst and say, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. This is wrong. So, you know, black folks, we can talk about it. We can march. We can protest. But slavery was not ended by black people. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Civil rights legislation was not passed by black people. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Constitutional amendments were not passed by black people. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It took people, flawed people, who happened to be white, to at least stand up and start to acknowledge the humanity of us all, of us all. So you know what? We might be taking baby steps, but they are steps nevertheless. Nevertheless. Yes. So, so y'all be encouraged, you know, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. And one final thing, J-Love, the Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. The Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. And once again, the Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. I love you and Lord willing, I'll be with y'all next week. Yes. And before we go, we want to one more time talk about um, Susan. Yes. And Thank you so much. I was going to ask you if you would do that. <laughs> and I, I want to, I want to tell everybody if you, if you show the QR code, so everybody that, cause some people have been added, if you use that, your phone and do the QR code and, or go to the uh, clemency for Susan Brown linked uh, a link tree. Um, the top one is a website that's been created for the project, the Clemency for Susan Brown, the Final Push Project. And uh, we are desperately in need of funding for the um, postage for the 500 postcards that we've got that we're sending out. 100 have gone out today. And um, and you can do that by either on that first link on the LinkedIn, there's a, you just do a cash app, even if it's $5, it makes a huge difference. Or go to our Facebook page where I posted all the jewelry that she sent me last week. And, um, and it, it just would really help support that. So we can get the word out on her. And especially these cards are going to be a good handful of them are going to be handed out at that day of empathy next um Next week is it? Next week, the twenty third. Next week, and then yeah, and then a rally next um, next month. And if you're in, um, if you're anywhere near the University of Michigan, go see her art show. Her she has three pieces of art in there that are also for sale. Will also be a sit for sale online, and that'll be also on the link tree. So keep coming back to that link tree. Save it on your computer that that QR code goes to because we'll be adding more link, links on there about her and about things that are going on with her, and ultimately follow. The, follow the movement to get her out of prison and we'll be celebrating on LinkedIn when she's uh, released. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. That. And this is the link, you guys, just in case you guys don't know how to work your phone with, for the QR code. That's the link right there. Go to you. Also, there's a story about Linda. You can um, read about her. She's a fantastic person. And again, she's going to be here with us next month for I think a two or three part series. So yes, thank you everyone. Thank you, Linda Marie for joining us. Rabbitia, attorney Hugo Matt. Thank you for everyone who's watched on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And we'll see you next week. God bless you.